response that I got was, oh, you female agents tend to over-dramatize things. You don't need the SWAT team. They didn't have a female at the time on the reactive or criminal squad. I kind of pushed my way into that squad. He did not have emotions. Those had to be learned for him. He just looked, he said, you know, I could kill you right now and, and nobody would come to your rescue. This is True Crime Arizona, an Arizona's Family Originals podcast. What you're about to hear is a story of a trailblazer in true crime, someone who shaped history from behind the scenes. Jana, J-A-N-A, Monroe, and I was a special agent with the FBI. Jana Monroe wasn't just a special agent with the FBI, though that'd be impressive enough. Monroe was the first female agent in the behavioral science unit at Quantico. But if they don't offer you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, that was me. I was seldom invited to anything. I was drawn to Monroe right away. She was sharp, witty, extremely intelligent, and personable. It's no wonder why she paved the way for women in law enforcement to come, but she definitely didn't do it traditionally. Now she can add author to her list of accomplishments. It's something she never planned to do until the explosion of true crime and some of the most popular documentaries, docu-series, and limited series on major streaming platforms being about cases she was a part of. I wasn't gonna write a book, and then as time passed, after I retired from the FBI, I started seeing all these shows and, and the interest in the type of work that I'd done, specifically when I was in the behavioral science unit, and I thought, um, there's some things that are entertaining, but um, I thought, I really did this work, so I would be able to, I didn't need a consultant or an advisor. I thought, I can just draw on my own work's experience, and I think hopefully people would find it entertaining, but even more so, some of the nuggets in it would be valuable on maybe security and safety and how the FBI really works. More on the book in a bit, but to truly understand Monroe's mark on history, we have to start from the beginning, humble beginnings, at 21 years old in California. Then the probation department was hiring, so I did. I started as a probation officer. It wasn't really what she wanted to be doing, but she thought the position got her foot in the door. She was passionate about stopping bullies and about our country, so law enforcement seemed like a good fit. Eventually, she worked her way up a bit. I was at the police department um, at this time, and I was the only female, and this was the uh, Upland Police Department, and I was working for their juvenile cases. I just felt I could and should be doing more, and I'd always been interested in the FBI. Up until the 70s, that wasn't an option when Edgar Hoover was at the helm, because his policies were, if you were a female... You could not be an agent when Mr. Hoover was the director of the FBI. That eventually changed, and Monroe told her boss at the police department she was going to apply. But he says, no, 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 I, I bet you 15 bucks you're not gonna get into to the FBI. And I thought, well, that's encouraging. Yeah, th thank you for the support. She laughs at it now, but that certainly didn't stop her at the time. She applied anyway and went through all the testing. Fortune favors the bold. But when I actually was selected and got a class date, for it. He knew he owed me the money, 
but instead of just handing me $15, which I thought was, was great, he laminated it on a plaque and then said, good luck in Butte. Butte, Montana, where she would go through a six-month training academy. But life wasn't just perfect for Monroe right away. She was married at the time to someone who did not want this life for her. My first husband and I, as, as I learned later, unfortunately, when we were getting married, I had said I'm gonna be in law enforcement. And when I did very, very well for the probation department and all the interviews and that, he was not real happy. And he said he was surprised. And I said, well, why were you surprised? He said, well, I was supportive because I didn't really think you were gonna get in. And I'm like, well, okay, that, that doesn't meet my definition of supportive. And so then when I decided I, I really wanted to go in the FBI, it was time to do that. And that had never been a secret. I'd, I'd mentioned that. It was almost like an ultimatum, well, you know, it's the FBI or me, and I don't want to move, and I don't want any of these things. And so I said, well, I think I'm going to pursue the FBI. Goodbye to husband number one. Turns out life had something sweeter ahead for Monroe. She met Dale, her forever husband, as she calls him, shortly after at the FBI new agents class at Quantico. He's still by her side today. After training, her first field office was Albuquerque, New Mexico, getting a taste of a huge issue that still exists today. Uh, the reservation work uh, to me was somewhat sad uh, because so much of the work there was either homicide or incest. Um, you, you had a lot of alcoholism, a lot of problems in which um, counseling was offered, but very few people would take advantage of it. So to me, a lot of the casework there was, was just sad. Yeah. Did that shape maybe the empathy that you took going forward when you're working in some of these cases as you went on with your career, knowing that you had that experience? I do. I think, again, you know, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. I don't think it got easier. I think I became more adept at uh, distancing myself. Next, she found herself working in the FBI office in Tampa. They didn't have a female at the time on what they called the reactive or criminal squads. So that was bank robberies, fugitives, kidnappings, all of the criminal things that you um, would, would be more like a police officer that you would react more. That's why they called them that at the time. Yeah. Um, and so to me, I kind of pushed my way into that squad because they said, well, we, we don't have a woman on here. And I said, well, that's why you need one. You need yeah. me. <laughs> you need me. You almost got shot in the head. Yes, yeah. This is a crazy story. Monroe knew the details of the search warrant they were serving had dangerous implications. So she had requested SWAT team be with them ahead of time and was denied. The response that I got was, oh, you female agents tend to over-dramatize things. You don't need the SWAT team. Well, shots were fired, one nearly hit her in the head, and the SWAT team was then called after. I had very long hair at the time, and it ended up cutting my hair because it like went through there. The women's agent's vests were different than the men's. So when I got a call from the deputy director after the shooting asking if I was okay, he said, is there anything, that, do you have any insights? And I told him about that. And he said, great. So the next thing I knew, like two weeks later, I was invited to Quantico to help work on a prototype for female vests. And they did change that? Yes. It was in Tampa, Monroe truly got a taste of the evil she'd work with for years to come. 
in the case of the slain Rogers family, a mom and her daughters killed while on vacation, their bodies thrown into the water. The case went cold for a year and a half. Monroe worked it in Tampa and foreshadowing here would finish it once she got to Quantico. We're looking at all the evidence, like, what have we missed? So taking everything out, copies of everything, we don't have the real evidence there. And so there was this little note that was directions from the hotel where they were, where the Rogers were staying to the boat dock. And so I asked, I said, so whose handwriting is that? And they said, well, the mom's, Jones. I said, well, how do you know that? Dead silence. How do you, how do you know that? Nobody had ever verified, it was an assumption. So what they did, we had one of the officers go to the, the father, the husband, and showed him the handwriting, and he said, that's not my wife's handwriting. So what I said, since I just come from Tampa, like you know, a year before that, I said, Dale Mabry, it's a huge thoroughfare there, and there's billboards up. I said, you know what? This has had such a negative impact on the community of Tampa. It, it's had everybody up in arms, and tourism was down. People were afraid to go there. Just a, a negative situation. So I said, let's go and ask people if, you know, the billboard folks, if we can put the sign up there, blow up the handwriting. So everybody did, you know, no charge to the federal government, and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll put the signs up. And in less than 48 hours, they had numerous calls, but three of the calls all said the same person, which is really odd, Oba Chandler. And the reason is Oba Chandler was in the screening, the, the back patios, you have to have your patio screened in Florida or you get eaten alive by bugs. And so he had his own business of doing this, of putting up the screens and the aluminum siding. But apparently he was pretty bad at it. And so there were a lot of people that were upset with the work he'd done and had taken him to small claims court. And he was a very prolific writer. So he would write and he was ornery, nasty. I mean, he would not, he was not acquiescing, like yeah. let's, let's settle out of court. Right. He was being defensive about it. So the people were angry. So they brought in, they had the handwritten notes and it was identical. Terrifyingly, Oba Chandler had a wife and children. When they arrested him, first, of course, you know, he, he denied it, but he did end up getting the death penalty. Monroe said investigators believe he killed previously, but couldn't ever prove it. A position had opened up at the Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico. Monroe was so good at what she did, a colleague recommended she apply. She made her way there and was taken aback by the way she was interviewed. When um, he and this other interview were, agent were interviewing me, they had some pictures of, you know, crime scenes and some bloody bodies and whatnot. And he pushed them across the desk. I'm sitting on the other side and just, he didn't ask me any questions. And so I'm looking at him and I said, why are you, what do you want me to do? And he said, well, I'm just watching you. I said, I know, but you're making me nervous. And, and he said, I want to see if you're, you know, what your reaction is. Are you going to recoil? Are you going to get upset? Are you, you know, I said, well, it's not like I'm going to faint or something. And he said, well, we've had women here that just can't deal with it. And so we want to make sure that you can handle it by looking at pictures. So I asked him, I said, did, it, did you do this with any of the men? No. Okay. It's that demeanor I found endearing, and it made me smile. A witty sarcasm mixed in with her taking no nonsense from these men. And that struck again right after the interview. 
they invited her to sit in on a consultation with evidence pictures of victims to see what the job was like, but she was told not to say anything, just to watch from the corner. They were, you know, discussing, well, maybe it was post-mortem activity. But what they were talking about are marks under the three different victims, their breasts. So this went on for a little bit with all their conjecture going on. So John goes, Jana, what do you think? And I'm like, well, can I speak? <laughs> so he said, yes, please come out. But I said, oh, you know, it looks to me like, you know, when you wear an underwire bra, sometimes, and especially if you've had a long day or it's hot out or something, you're going to have demarcations under, under the breast because they're symmetrical. And that's what it looks like to me. What did they say? Didn't say anything. And then you got the job? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I did. Monroe seemed to be the missing link to a unit that really needed her heart and sensitivity, something they certainly weren't used to. We are more emotional or we're more compassionate. We could be more nurturing. And so all of those characteristics and those qualities bring a different optic to it. And I think that's what was missing because there were no women and there wasn't a whole lot of diversity. serial killers. People are fascinated by them and the cases associated with them. Whether it's limited series television shows, movies, docu-series, documentaries, or books, serial killers are the topic of so many of them. Jana Monroe worked directly with some of the most infamous and prolific of them all. How do you analyze the behavior of a serial killer. What you're talking about is offender traits and characteristics, which is often called offender profiling. Victimology, victimology is looking at the behavior of the victim, and that determines whether she would be considered as a low, medium, or high profile victim. Most of them were not going to accept any accountability. It was amazing how you could see some of the evil, diabolical things that they did and they'd give a comment like, oh, you think this is bad? You should see what so-and-so, have you talked to so-and-so in the other cell over there? You should see what he did. So Monroe and her team more or less had to play their own game and appeal to the killers themselves in order to elicit the information they wanted and needed in an investigation. Most of the interviews that I did was after somebody had been convicted, right? So they're either on death row or serving life, and the, the purpose for the FBI visiting them was so we could learn from them. And we were very upfront about that. We'd say, you know, we can't offer you a stay of execution. We can't offer you a better prison. We don't have that kind of quid pro quo capabilities. But what we do want to do, and we're sure you would like to stop someone like you from committing more crimes like this, we want to offer you some assistance to law enforcement because we think that, that your expertise, and you're appealing to the ego, right? Right. And I mean, they're pretty conceited. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I found. The arrogance was pretty amazing. So that was the appeal. And the majority of the time, surprisingly, that's when they would talk about it. One of the most notable serial killer cases she worked on, Ted Bundy. The way that I would analyze him is he was the most frightening because he seemed the most normal. By most standards, he was good looking, he spoke well, he was educated, and that's one of the reasons he was so successful in apprehending his victims. They willingly would go with him. Bundy was already at Stark Prison in Florida by the time Monroe and her partner, Bill Hagmeyer, began on the case. I don't know if it was he didn't want to talk to me, 
or he didn't want to talk to a female. But the relationship then was with Bill. So I took a back seat in that, and Bill would give me the, the download after he had had these visits with, with Bundy. Bundy was trying to broker deals with the FBI. So each year he would tell you a victim and where they were buried for another year stay of execution. And that way, you know, avoiding the death penalty, right? And he'd be serving life, life in prison. Well, they don't make deals with serial killers, thank goodness. Bundy admitted to murdering between 30 to 40 victims. We thought at one point that could be 100. We know it's not all of them. He was probably one of the most prolific serial killers. But what he did do was give the names, the agencies, and where the bodies were buried. And so what I helped Bill do is we convened all of those agencies, those law enforcement agencies, back at Quantico in a large, large conference room, one of the classrooms, and went over the cases. They tried to piece together what unsolved cases in those areas could be linked. But the way Ted Bundy worked was so calculated, it was overwhelming. Listening to him, or when Bill would give the accounts, Bill Hagmeyer would give the accounts of what he did in some of the necrophilia part of it and some of the post-mortem activity, which was not known initially. And I think his premeditation part of it was astounding in that he would select the body disposal site before he selected his victim. He took into account all the considerations when people are looking for a body, when someone goes missing, and where would they not find the body in time for decomposition to have set in so you couldn't identify it perhaps as much. So he almost worked backwards. Yes. Once he had selected what he considered a worthy victim, he would break into her house and see like what kind of cologne she used, if they had, that's when they had records, you know, vinyl, what kind of music she liked. So then when he approached her later, right, oh, you know, are you wearing, you know, whatever, Chanel number no. five, and oh, do you like country music? And she'd be like astounded that oh, we have all these things in common. But today you could just look at somebody's Instagram profile. Absolutely. It's still, I, I get a little disconcerted when I see how much information, personal information, people put out there. It is unsettling when you think of that how easy it is to get people's information and know about their lives than it was back then. The waiver of preliminary hearing has the approval of the court. Defendant is ordered bound over for trial before the circuit court. Ted Bundy may have been the most deliberate but Monroe's work would bring her nearly face-to-face -face with the most famous cannibal to ever live. Mr. Dahmer, is it correct that you wish to waive or give up your right to have a preliminary hearing in this case? That's correct, Your Honor. How did you get involved in the Jeffrey Dahmer case? Well, I was involved uh, with the Jeffrey Dahmer case because the whole unit was. Local law enforcement in Wisconsin called the FBI because what they found was unprecedented in the most disturbing way. If you ever heard it's an old, old thing, Mr. Potato Head? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of like that, except with real body parts. They were like, we've never seen anything like this. Jeffrey Dahmer is known to have killed 17 men between the late 70s and early 90s before he was caught, having sex with their corpses, dismembering them, then keeping different body parts. Eventually, the FBI would continue investigating and trying to figure out what led Dahmer to his actions. He was convicted and sentenced to 15 consecutive lifetimes in prison. 
Monroe had to learn what made him tick and read the entire case file. But before she could make it to the prison in 1994, a fellow inmate took action. I had an appointment to go and interview him after he had been apprehended and was sitting in prison. But unfortunately, he was killed a few days prior to my, my interview date. What were you planning on asking Jeffrey Dahmer? I had a whole host of questions for him. I'd been told that you know he started having these feelings, these sexual feelings when he was like in his early teens, but he was excited more by dead bodies. by And, and he would fantasize about men uh, males that were either asleep or dead. I don't think you just wake up one day and have that. So I was gonna see if he could identify when that happened and when he thought he started acting on it and did he have a similar feeling for females. I wanted to explore the sexual prowess of that when, when it actually started and kind of get into more detail about it. He would prey on people that didn't have a good family support or structure or somebody that would be out you know, beating the bushes looking for them. And because he, he didn't want anybody fighting back with that, he'd be kind to them and whatnot. And then whenever he got them where he felt he was you know, at his power and his strength, that's when, when he would overcome the victims. Unlike Bundy, Dahmer seemed to show remorse in court. I should have stayed with God. I tried and failed and created a Holocaust. And if I could give my life right now to bring their loved ones back, I would do it. I am so very sorry. I deserve whatever I get because of what I have done. Imagine my face when Monroe said this. This will sound a little odd, but he's my favorite serial killer. What? It naturally piqued my interest and curiosity right away. And I say favorite because I think, again, when you look at notoriety, why somebody is better known or they choose to highlight someone versus somewhere else. He was extremely diabolical, and I should say is, as far as I know, he is not dead yet, uh, still institutionalized. She's talking about American serial killer Edmund Kemper, who stands at a whopping six feet nine inches. His life of murder began when he was young. He killed his grandparents when he was still a juvenile, 15 and then called his mom and said, you know, I just killed grandma and grandpa. No emotion whatsoever. Monotone with no feelings. It was pretty crazy. Kemper would spend time in juvenile detention, but when he was released in 1969, he went and lived with his mom again in the Santa Cruz, California area, even though his release condition said he couldn't live with his mom. She worked for the University of California, Santa Cruz. His killing spree began in the 70s. He would use her car that had a faculty stamp on it so he could get anywhere throughout the campus and he started abducting young women and killing them. We learned a lot from him in that there was, they called it a local watering hole where the police would go, a bar, after, after work. And the officers and detectives that were working on these missing girls or the ones that had already been found, right, would talk about the case openly. And Kemper would sit on a bar stool near them and sometimes would buy them drinks and overhear these things. He would listen to that, you know, they don't have a lead on this and they do on that. And he told us later that information that he got a lot of it from the police himself. I'm not sure how many people he actually killed. He killed his grandparents, he killed his mother and her friend. He killed, I think, at least eight co-eds. 
he said it started to get so easy. He was picking up one girl and he was six foot nine. He's a very large, imposing person. And so he said he started picking up two at a time because it was so easy just with one and he'd have one watch uh, while he was killing the other. So he got some kind of a sick thrill out of that. Kemper was cocky beyond reason. He indicated that at one point after he had severed a head, he put it in a clear plastic bag and walked around downtown and nobody reported it. And he thought that'd be odd. So he ended up turning himself in and said that you guys are never gonna catch me. So I, I figured the only way to stop me killing is for me to turn myself in. Monroe spoke with Edmund Kemper once. He actually called me because he wanted to help me with a case <laughs> on some things. So he was offering his, his help on that. This Kemper story sends chills down your spine. One of Monroe's partners ended up in an elevator with Edmund Kemper. And he ended up in an elevator with them. There was some kind of a guard snafu because they should not be alone in an elevator. And he just looked at them both. He had a very deadpan. He did not have emotions. He had those had to be learned for him. So if you were speaking to him, it's very deadpan. He would, you know, how is the weather? Yes, I just killed my mother. You wouldn't be able to differentiate from his tone. He said, you know, I could kill you right now and, and nobody would come to your rescue while we're in the elevator. And then he just looked up at the elevator thing. And I remember John telling me that that was one of the longest elevator rides that he had ever taken. Monroe's work would soon be portrayed on the big screen for millions to see in one of the most popular movies of all time. Jodie Foster, in my opinion, was extremely professional, very uh, astute, and asked really good questions. Jodie Foster came to Quantico to train with Monroe to prepare for her role in the movie The Silence of the Lambs. Her character, more or less, based on Monroe herself, opposite of a serial killer named Hannibal Lecter. Foster was committed to learning how an agent would realistically function in that role to make it as realistic as possible. Oh, by the way, when you're going on death row, make sure you don't wear a dress and heels and no makeup. You know, be as, as low key as possible. You don't need anything to stand out any more than you're going to anyway. Parts were still made for movie magic, though. She was a trainee. She was in New Agents Academy, and no one would give you a gun and have you go out and work on a case like that. That part wasn't terribly realistic, but they made it so that her credentials and her background in psychology tied in very nicely with what she was doing. How similar were some of the, the killers you analyzed or worked with to Hannibal Lecter? Well, I'm really glad that there is no real Hannibal yeah, Lecter and that yeah. he was a compilation of three because he was terribly diabolical. I, I think what had in common and the trait that I liked they portrayed is very, very smart, very, very bright. I think a lot of people who just haven't had time to you know, study serial killers have an opinion or a thought that they are um, stupid or that you know, you're, they're gonna have something that you can, it'd be nice, right? Visually, you can look at them and go, oh, I, I need to stay away from, from that person. That's like I said, Bundy was certainly not that way. As a true crime correspondent, there are two topics I'm probably asked about the most or have the most intrigue, serial killers and cults. 
Monroe would work on one of the largest cult investigations and historical events in the history of this country. David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in the Waco siege. Her job was to analyze a video from the cult leader himself to the FBI. Koresh had sent a video and it was all, all the, the young kids, predominantly young girls, a few young boys that were there. And he said they are not, uh, he'd been talking to the negotiators and he said, these people are not being held against their will. So they sent this, this video and, and believe me, it would not take much of a skill set to determine that they were being held hostage. They were young kids and they'd say like in a monotone, we are not being held against our will. I mean, it was, it was so scripted, it, it was sad. So yeah, my um, determination was, yes, they are being held against their will. Her husband also worked on the Waco siege in a different capacity with the FBI. Quite the talking point for the two of them when asked, have you worked on anything together? Serial killers and cult leaders often share mental manipulation tactics, but Monroe says you can't treat them the same. What's the difference in terms of dealing with a cult leader? Well, okay, dealing with a cult leader when, when you're negotiating, I think the big difference there is that you're looking at a whole different mindset. And I do believe a lot of the adults, they were there on their own volition. They wanted to be there, right? And you can call it, you know, if they, their mind had been altered or whatever, they, they were believers in that initially, right? So I think what you really need to do when you're dealing with a cult is have that understanding of what their culture, you know, cult comes from culture, what their culture is about, what they believe in. And David Koresh was masterful at reciting the seven seals and a lot of the biblical portions that he decided that was a part of his cult. So I think when you're doing that as a negotiator, you need to have that background to know who you're talking to. September 11th, 2001. If you're listening to this episode now, chances are you remember exactly where you were when the planes hit the World Trade Center. Monroe was working in the Denver FBI office. And it was hard to break away from the television to get in the car to drive. As she was watching this all unfold like everyone else, she knew long days and nights were ahead of her, investigating so much behind the scenes as America watched the horrific result play out on the news. Pretty quickly, Monroe was sent from Denver to Las Vegas to head up operations there for a very specific reason, something I had never heard about until now. All 19 hijackers had been identified as being in that area, and we thought that's where the planning was going on. And what'd you find out on that? The planning was going on there, yeah. They had what they call burner phones and other information, but we were able to cross-link some of the cell phone information to understand that they had been there. And then the hotels were very cooperative in working with us and looking at the manifests as to where certain people were at certain times. So the Phoenix memo was a memo that was written by an agent in the Phoenix office. <laughs> when you see the manifest and you're looking at that, what did that reveal? Oddly enough, when they stayed in the hotels, they used Mohammed Atta, was one of them, they used their own names. And so you could basically, what, piece together their whereabouts right before this happened? Correct. It was a delicate balance between wanting to make sure they did this right, the correct names, the correct places, verifying all the information coming in at rapid speed, with racing to get it done, unsure if more attacks were going to happen, and if they did, 
where? Trying to ascertain and understand the mindset. And okay, so they're in Las Vegas because they're making Las Vegas the next target, or what were they actually doing in Las Vegas? Were there plans that you found to? There were indications that Las Vegas could have been one of the targets. Thankfully, that didn't come to fruition. Shortly after 9-11, Monroe came to the Phoenix FBI office as the special agent in charge while a massive investigation was going on. The Phoenix memo was a memo that was written by an agent in the Phoenix office. What that was was some excellent investigative analysis that the agent had done. FBI agent Ken Williams had found something strange. Students from the Middle East and overseas were coming to American flight schools but not wanting to get the proper flight education. What he ascertained was that there were these people that were learning to fly, but none of them wanted to learn how to land. And he thought that was very odd. That sent up a red flag to him. So Williams put together what's now known as the Phoenix Memo and sent it to headquarters, warning them that this could be a terrorist threat to the United States inciting names and flight schools. But nothing was done about that memo. Williams sent it to headquarters in July 2001. In that memo, were there names that were involved in 9-11? There were names that were involved in 9-11, but there were also some other names that were not. So had anybody acted on the Phoenix memo sooner, do you think there was a chance 9-11 could have been prevented? You know, that's a trillion dollar question. I, I would certainly not answer that only because, you know, when you're looking in your lens in hindsight, everything seems so clear. It's haunting to think about. I've talked with Ken Williams, and to this day, he doesn't talk about it on the 9-11 anniversary because it's so emotional for him. Monroe held his work dearly and still does. Monroe finished her career at the FBI as the top dog at the Phoenix office. All the former special agents in charge had their headshots on the walls in the Phoenix office in black and white. Monroe asked for hers to be in color. Pat was par for the course and what makes her extra special and unforgettable. Before retiring, she helped get the cyber unit in the FBI up and running which in this day and age is critically needed as cyber crimes continue to be some of the biggest threats. As a reporter interviewing her, all I could think was, what didn't she do? This was nothing short of a decorated career for a woman who got nothing handed to her. She paved the way. Looking back now on everything you did, it seems like you were always you during it and that Anybody who gave you a hard time about that at first came around to absolutely love it. What's your advice or even maybe message to other women who are up and coming in fields that maybe are still dominated by men in terms of being themselves while still getting to the top? Thank you for that question. You know, being you, being genuine, and you can you be professional, right? And, and I think that kind of goes without saying. We, we all have different modes or different behaviors depending on where we are. You're not gonna act some way in church in a different way at a bowling alley or, or something else. But being your genuine self and being a really hard ethical worker, I think that's gonna get you success in any industry. It's not limited to you know the FBI or, or to law enforcement. 
But I think that genuineness is what helps you relate not only to your co-workers and build a team, but it does to, and I'll keep to the FBI, so when you are trying to um, interview someone, you're trying to elicit information, by having that type of a rapport building, which is genuine, people see through this, whether they've been trained or not, we as human beings have a marvelous skill set. A lot of people just don't listen to their little voice, their little intuition. They maybe don't know how to, but people know without even saying whether someone's being genuine with them or not. And I think by keeping that genuineness in your personality, it's going to spill over into your work. That brings us to this, wearing a new hat of author. Monroe never planned on writing a book, but it just kind of fell into place. What was that like for you to take a very successful decades-long career and turn that into a book that people could read about and be interested in all of the work that you did? The reason I postponed the book, I never really had an inclination to write a book. But maybe what's interesting to me, I didn't think would be interesting to other people. So I really did, and I treasured the advice of others that I shared that with, because I think, oh yeah, that would, that would be interesting. Go ahead, go ahead, do that. But the part that surprised me the most was the jaunt down memory lane. I got very emotional certain parts of this, and I was blessed with a pretty good memory, but I also ha I kept copious notes. I'm, if you, anybody who's worked with me will know that, you know, sometimes it bothers them too, that I'm you know, taking notes all the time. But I would read my handwritten notes, and i like, oh my gosh, and then it would jog my memory and all these other things. Some of them not so good. Like a diary. Yeah, yeah, a journal, and I hadn't realized I'd suppressed some of those things. The title, Hearts of Darkness. This book, I really wanted to dedicate it to those hearts of darkness, to the too many victims and, the, and their families. Jana Monroe successfully found a way to get to the heart of nearly everyone she worked with, victims families, co-workers, criminals, serial killers. Not everyone can do that. She did it her way. You didn't have to change who you were to find success in an industry like that. You just had to jump over some, some barriers I, at first. Yes, I jumped over some barriers uh, with my foreign chills. <laughs> I love that so much. True Crime Arizona, the podcast, is hosted by me, Brianna Whitney, and produced by Sergio Hernandez. It's a production of Arizona's Family, 3TV, CBS5, and azfamily.com in Phoenix, Arizona. This is True Crime Arizona, an Arizona's Family Originals podcast. 